Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. We are in our second week in the book of Colossians, Christ at the Center. And as Brandon was uh, telling us last week, Paul is writing this letter to the churches in Colossae because he is concerned. There are false teachers among them, and the false teachers are telling them, listen, hey, Jesus is great, that's awesome, you guys believe in Jesus, but he's not enough. You need more. They were telling him, these false teachers saying, you need extra spiritual knowledge to become a real Christian. You're not legit. These Gnostic teachers believed that Jesus was just the first rung on the ladder of knowing God and finding life that was truly life. And so this morning, we're going to continue to read Paul's answer to that question that Jesus is not enough. So aren't you, if you're willing and able, won't you stand? I'm gonna read God's word together. Colossians chapter one, beginning in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the reading of God's word. Every bit of it is true, and you need it, because we need to know our Father. You may be seated. In eighteen ninety-three, eighteen ninety-three was the world famous Columbian Exposition that took place in Chicago. It was a massive world's fair. 21 million people came while it was open. 
But one of the more prominent showcases to which so many people were so excited about was something they called the World Parliament of Religions. And what they did was they got world religion leaders from all around the world, all different cultures together in Chicago where they were going to come and bring the finer points of everybody's religion and hopefully they believed they could actually put them together and make a new religion. Here's a picture of it. You can see on stage, obviously, people from all different parts of the world in this world parliament of religion. Well, D.L. Moody, the famous evangelist, saw this World's Fair, a great opportunity for sharing the gospel. And so he got other evangelists together and they planned their strategies to be preaching Christ throughout the days and weeks of the fair. Well, some of Moody's friends wanted him to attack this parliament of religions and break down the false teaching. But Moody said no. Moody said that he would preach Christ only. He would reveal the supremacy of Christ, the peerless, supreme, all-sufficient Christ, he said, would do the job. And he was right. Thousands upon thousands of people were converted. You see, Moody understood what Paul is trying to communicate here. When faced with false teaching or false ideologies, preach the supremacy of Christ. So is Jesus enough? Is he enough for your life? Is he enough for your troubled marriage, for your suffering, for your fears? Is Jesus enough? You know, if we're honest, I mean like honest, honest, There are times when we feel like he's not enough. Because after all, when faced with suffering or stress or fear, sometimes we often go to the false teachers of retail therapy, alcohol, sex, porn, entertainment, and we overuse them to soothe our emptiness. Yeah, yeah, we want Jesus, but is he enough? Well, let's look at what Paul says. Take your sermon outline, and the first thing is the preeminence of Christ. Paul gives this staggering, breathtaking, overwhelming, almost song-like avalanche of the majesty, the power, and the glory of Jesus, the supremacy of Christ in all things. He says he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. This word firstborn means that he is the highest in rank. He's the highest in honor in creation because he's the creator. You see, in the ancient Near East, the eldest son, the firstborn, had the highest rank in the family. The firstborn was equal in status, power, and importance with the Father. So Christ is supreme in creation. He's the creator of all things. I mean, think about the universe itself. The universe is millions of light years across. That's astonishingly large. But Jesus also created the tiniest of creatures. 
There are over 800,000 cataloged insects. And there are also billions within different species of insects. From the massive universe to the tiniest bug. Well, he's not only the creator of creation, he's also the end, the goal. All things were created by him, but they're also for him. Christ is the goal of creation. Now let me ask you, so why are you here? Why do you exist? Why is there Florida? Why is there Citrus County? Why are there manatees? What is the end for which the world was created? Where is all of history and all of creation going? To Jesus. Paul says that the creation right now is actually groaning and aching and longing for the day of consummation when Christ brings all things to himself. So all things sprang forth by his command and all things will return to him at his command. He is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. But I love what Paul says. He says that, that, that Christ is also the sustainer of all things. That he holds everything together right now by the power of his word. Look what Hebrews says. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Paul says he holds everything together. That is in the present tense, which means that Jesus is right now actively holding everything together. God, I just want you to chill for a minute. And I want you to feel yourself breathing. Jesus, by his sustaining power, enables you to have every breath, every heartbeat. And if he were to remove his sustaining power, we would be vaporized in a millisecond. You see, Christianity does not teach deism. The world does not go around in an automated way like a clock ticking that God wound up a long time ago. When my kids were little, man, I miss those times. <laughs> you know, when they were little, you know, uh, I was much younger, of course, and they're just tiny, and I'd throw them up in the air, you know, and catch them, and they just burst with giggling. Or like in the summer when it was hot and you just scoop your kid up and you just throw them into the pool. And as soon as they come up from the water, they're just smiling and they're swimming towards you and they're saying, Daddy, do it again. Do it again, Dad. Daddy, please sustain the effort of this fun that you've created. Do it again. I love what G.K. Chesterton says about Jesus' sustaining power. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until they're nearly dead. 
Uh, true. <laughs> For the grown-up people are not strong enough to exalt in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never gotten tired of making them. It may be that he has an eternal appetite of infancy. For we are sent, for we have sinned and grown old, but our Father is younger than we. Isn't that beautiful? That every moment of every day that Jesus says to the Son, do it again. To the moon, do it again. To my heartbeat, do it again. To the daisies, do it again. In verse 19, he says, in all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is not simply that Jesus is fully God, but that God is fully in Jesus. You know, sometimes we try to get our minds around the Trinity that there is one God in three persons. And sometimes people have said, well, then that means that it's like a pie. There's one pie and it's cut into three equal slices. No. What this is teaching us is that God is fully in Jesus and Jesus is fully in God, full fullness. And then to our shock, though he is God, it says that Jesus is the firstborn among the dead the highest ranking of one who has risen from the dead. But it is death. Jesus, the creator, sustaining all things, death. The firstborn among the dead. You know, it's amazing. Paul takes us to this amazing heights and dizzying majesty and the supremacy of Christ. But then he says he is the firstborn among the dead. That Jesus would taste death. Real flesh. He bleeds, he sweats, he cries. He knows suffering and torture and loneliness and anguish. The worst of human experience. He has tasted it. But why is Paul telling us all of this? Where is he going with it? In verse 18, he tells us that in everything, he might be preeminent. Everything which calls for a complete reordering of your life in everything. My wife and I were young. We lived in Orlando, and uh, we had some friends, young, another young couple, and he played football for the Miami Hurricanes back when Jimmy Johnson, they won all those championships. And so this guy's name was Marty. He was an offensive lineman. And he came over to my house three times, and every time he came over, he sat on my furniture and he broke it. I was like, Marty, you are to stand in my house. Do not sit anywhere. It was a man quake. If you take a big truck, a really big truck, and you drive it on a little bridge, there's a truck quake. When Jesus comes into your life, there is a life quake, and everything gets reordered. 
You know, if Jesus were a guru or just some kind of wise man, there would be a limit to the things he could require of you, his rights over you. But if he is God, then you cannot relate to him and any part of your life be non-negotiable. Any view, any behavior, anything. He must have preeminence in your life in everything. Now imagine that you had a friend who was dying of a rare disease. And you took your friend to a great doctor. And the doctor said to your friend, hey, you're gonna be dead in a week. But I have a remedy for you. But there's just one thing about this remedy. It will indeed save your life and you will live a long and full and flourishing life. But there's just one thing. You cannot eat chocolate ever again. And your friend would be like, oh, this is like such good news. This is amazing. Oh, thank you, doctor. Thank you, doctor. And then your friend looks at you for approval and you're like, no chocolate? Really? Well, then forget the medicine. Don't take it. You know, some people are interested in Christianity or even some Christians. But then they hear things like this, that you're not to have sex unless you're married, or that pornography is a sin, or that you just can't pick your gender, or that Christians are to love the church and participate in it. They object And they object to some of these things. You see, even to think like that is intellectually irrational and maybe even a little emotionally off to have objections, objections that would even come up. Because if Jesus is God, he is the source of all beauty and truth. If Jesus is God, And knowing him will result in all beauty, truth, freedom, hope, and joy passing into you for endless ages that you will run and you will not grow weary, you will walk and not grow faint, that his love, his glory, and his joy would double in you forever and that some of that is gonna be tasted by you now in Christ If Jesus, if there's even a chance that Jesus is who he says he is, then how could you say, no chocolate? Forget it. You cannot absolute, you cannot know the absolute if you absolutize anything else, be it chocolate, sex, career, or money. You cannot know the supreme one if anything else is supreme in your life. Jesus does not come into your life to round it out. He's not not a supplement. He's not a vitamin supplement that you take to improve the quality of your life. He's not your buddy. There cannot be anything in your life to which you say to God, hey, that's off limits, don't touch that. No, in everything he must be preeminent. 
Because when he comes into your life and he was revealed to you as he truly is, like Paul does here, that causes a life quake. And it calls for a reordering of everything. That's what it means to be a Christian. There's nothing in the middle. He is Lord of all. The preeminence of Christ. And then we have the presentation of us. The presentation of us. So a couple weeks ago, um, my wife and I went down to Tampa and went to this nice restaurant. We had a, we had a gift card and, and, and the food was amazing. Uh, I, I can't remember the name of the restaurant. Um, but, and I'm not even a tiramisu fan, but we got the tiramisu and it was like amazing. But as good as the food was, one of the things that I particularly enjoyed was when they brought uh, my meal was how they plated the food. The, the presentation of the food was just beautiful, the way it was displayed before us. You know, one of the things that we misunderstand about Christianity is that we think that God is plated before us, that he is presented to us. No, no, we, we are presented before him. So Paul says, in order to present you before him, this, the idea here is a courtroom. You're being presented before God that you will stand before God and a verdict will be given. I love what Lewis says here. He says, in the end, that face, which is the delight or the terror of the universe, must be turned upon each of us, either with one expression or with the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. And so Paul, he's reminding the churches in Colossae what their presentation before God was before the gospel. And he tells them that they were hostile, hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. There was a 17th century Christian woman by the name of Lady Huntington and she invited one of her friends, the Duchess of Buckingham, the Duchess of Buckingham, to hear George Whitfield preach. And afterwards, Lady Huntington received this note from her friend. It is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting, and I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiments so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. <laughs> I mean, she is so offended, right? She is so shocked that someone like her would be a wretch who needed amazing grace. But you have to say this, she gets it. She gets it. Because it is offensive. But notice what her defense is. Her defense is she appeals 
to her high rank and her good breeding. She appeals to the presentation of herself. You know, Jesus tells a parable in Matthew about a king who has a great wedding feast. And in the ancient Near East, when a king had a feast, he would invite the guests, but he would also actually provide everyone he invited with wedding clothes. But this one guy comes to the king's uh, wedding feast and he decides just to wear his own clothes. He refuses the king's clothes and the king catches him. And this guy was assuming that he was presentable in and of himself. And so the king throws him out. Paul says, we were hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. In the New Testament, who is the most hostile towards Jesus? The Pharisees, the religious people, churchgoers, the people who believed they were the most presentable. Those who lived moral, upright, clean, and presentable lives. And Jesus calls them out and actually says that what they're doing is evil. You know, you can be, you can, if you think, if you think you are near the kingdom of God, you're actually far from it. If you realize that you're far from the kingdom of God, then you're actually near it. Tim Keller says this, He says, it is your goodness that makes you miserable. It is your goodness that's at the heart of all the problems. It's your self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is the cause of racism, classism, and political hostility. It is the cause of so much family breakdown. It is the cause of spiritually stagnant people and churches. It is the cause of our anxiety, our critical spirit, our comparing and complaining. In our insecurity, we don't feel like we are enough. And so we wake up each day dressing ourselves to present ourselves to God and others. And we are always hoping that just maybe, just maybe this time it will be believable. So what does point two have to do with point one? the preeminence of Christ. It is this. The smaller your Jesus is, the more you will have to give a lot of energy to make yourself presentable. Clothing yourself with goodness and status and success. But the bigger and the more biblical is your Jesus, then the whole game, the whole exhausting game of trying to make yourself presentable will just vaporize in the presence of his supremacy. And you will finally be able to lay your deadly doing down. You can get rid of the costume. You can come off the stage And you can rest in his supremacy. I like what uh, John Calvin says. He says, men are never duly touched 
and impressed with the conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. But Paul tells his readers, he says, let's talk serious about the presentation of you. He says, now you have been reconciled by his death in order to present you holy and blameless. This is in the present tense. Paul is not saying to them, someday you will be. No, he's saying right now you are presentable in Christ to him. You are beautiful to him. I mean, think about a breathtaking piece of artwork or a landscape that just takes your breath away or a day with your family out on the water and it's one of those days where it's just breathtaking and the beauty and the time, it just takes your breath away. That's what you are to God. His heart leaps over you with delight. You take his breath away when you are plated, when you are plated before him, presented to him, his heart leaps with delight. Don't believe me, do you? Well, I'll prove it to you. Matthew chapter one. We have the presentation of the genealogy of Jesus. And listed in the family tree of Jesus is Tamar who committed incest, Bathsheba the adulterous woman, Rahab the prostitute, Ruth who was the pagan, the outsider. These sinners are put in Jesus's family. They are made clean, they are beautiful to him. You know, when people talk about their family, they focus on the people that they're proud of. That's who they talk about. That's what they post on social media. My grandson, my grandson plays Division I football at the Notre Dame. My daughter, she's the lead surgeon at John Hopkins. You focus on what you're proud of, who you want to be associated with. And those in the family that shame the name, yeah, you just don't mention them much, do you? You don't send them a birthday card. Jesus puts these sinners, these known sinners in his family because he's proud of them. And you know what else is shocking? This is Matthew chapter one. This is the first book of the New Testament. It's the first chapter of the first book of the New Testament. And he displays them right there in his family because he's so Proud of them. Wants to be named alongside of them. You? You? Same. Same. And finally, Paul brings us to the perseverance of the faith. He says, if indeed... You continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. If, if, if you're strong enough to hold on, 
if you've got what it takes to persevere. Now, this if kind of looms large, does it not? It's like all this overwhelmingly good news, and then there's this big, gigantic billboard that says if, and it's got a little footnote number by it for you to read the fine print. So is Paul saying that we are saved by God's grace, but if you wanna keep God's favor, you better work really hard. No. And there's more of this in the book of Colossians, but it's like what Paul says in Philippians. In Philippians, he tells us, he's telling us this here, work out your salvation. Work it out. Not work for it. Work it out, he says, because God is at work in you. And so there is activity for us to do. We are to break a sweat. We are to be applying the means of grace using our minds, our hearts, our wills. You know, prayer, Bible, church, missions, fellowship, encouraging one another. We are to work out because God is at work in us. Now listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. We are to use the means of grace to become what we are. We are to hold on to the one who has a much stronger grip on us. But nevertheless, where do you get the power to hold on, to be steadfast, to persevere? Well, verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile all things. So Jesus is the fullness of God, but it says that nothing in all of creation brought God the Father more delight, more joy, more pleasure Pleased to have the fullness of God, the fullness of the deity to be displayed in Jesus. I mean, it just makes God so happy. But that's not all. God says that he was absolutely joyful that this fullness in Jesus would be leveraged to bring you to him. So how, where do you get the power? You get the power by experiencing, experiencing his delight over you. You know, there was a uh, remedial education uh, curriculum program that was being introduced into this large school district that they were going to work out in all the middle schools. You know, something for the kids that were really struggling, you know, that, that, to kind of help them before they got to high school. So they're really excited about this program and they, they put it in all the middle schools and they're getting close to May, and so they're evaluating it. And they're realizing that as, as much as they tried to pick something that would really help these struggling middle schoolers, it just wasn't working. None of the kids were doing better, except one little girl, one little middle school girl was absolutely flourishing. I mean, she fit the program. She was the profile. Man, but she was doing so great. So the administrators all went to the school to talk to the teacher. What made the difference in this girl's life? And they got there and they said, what's this little girl's name? And the teacher said, oh, her name's Edie. He said, but I call her. And she got a big smile on her face. She said, but I call her Speedy Edie. And they're like, why do you call her Speedy Edie? And she says, oh, well, she runs track. 
And every track meet, I go, to the, I go to the track meet and I stand at the fence and I just scream for her to win. I scream for her to run as fast as she can. I'm so proud of her. Light bulb, the administrators realized what powered this girl to persevere was the exuberant delight that the teacher had over her. Now, what if you had that? Well, you do. For the love of Christ compels us. Amen. Heavenly Father, we so much need to encounter your supremacy. To be shocked and shaken, to have the life quake again and again of your preeminence. Would you help us to see it? to reorder our affections so that we might be free and rest from the constant need to present ourselves. We have all of it in you. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org.